his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, he's the author of Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, psychic, author, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com. And she is a psychic medium, tarot reader, and healer. And if you are having major um, decisions to make coming up in the near future, and you want to find out what energies are surrounding it, I highly recommend her, and you can check her out at tarotbygender.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is, let me get his name here, make sure I get it right, it is Donald Altman, and he has written, I don't know, something like 20 books on mindfulness, and he has a new book out called Travers, which is his first novel, so we're going to talk about all of that. Thank you for coming on today, Don. Oh, well, thanks, Gary. A pleasure to be here. So what inspired you to write? go from like writing like 19 books on mindfulness to writing a novel called Traveler? And what is it about? Well, Traveler is uh, you know, a, a different jumping-off point for me. I wanted to reach people in a different way. And mindfulness is kind of part of this book, but this this book is really about expanding your consciousness, expanding your awareness, and not being caught. I really think we're caught in the stranglehold of a materialistic worldview nowadays, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I and I and I really think it's seeped into the mental health care and how it's how it's being given to people. And I think we need to get back to a more whole, you know, holistic whole kind of view of what is mental health, what is healing. And and so that's kind of the core of the story. So the psychiatrist is taken on, you know, he's very science-minded. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to see anything past the logical and the rational. And I, I meet so many people like that, not just in this field, but just in everyday life, of course, where science is kind of like the new religion, basically. Right. And... Uh, and so uh, he's unwilling to entertain anything beyond that. But he's he suffered a great loss. He lost his daughter in the book. And so this is kind of ripping his family apart, and it's affecting his his whole life. And then a, he encounters a, a, a traveler. It's a woman who, she calls herself Traveler Jackie, and she's got a, a dog. Uh, it's really a sentient canine who is with her. And... Uh, and around the same time, this young suicidal patient comes into the psych unit, and uh, he is kind of forced to take this mystical, you know, spiritual initiation, a shamanic journey, if you will, and it, it turns his whole worldview upside down. Hmm. All topics that I cover quite a bit, actually, you know, about, um, you know, using spirituality and, you know, inter- integrating that with therapy and, and other healing modalities that are more 
holistic and natural. Um, you know, I mean, did you write the book because as a novel format to reach other people that might not read a more technical type of book? You know, I think, yeah, I think I did, but also I think it was a story that just, um, mm-hmm. it really just wanted to come out of me. I just really wanted to share this story. I, I, you know, I started writing it and I didn't really know where it was going to go. It's kind of an interesting process. And so I, I let, I wanted the character just to be who they were. It's a funny thing. Uh, I've had people who actually read, uh, the book and they, and they said, well, that's you. And I said, well, no, it's fiction. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I've, I mean, I've worked in that field and I, I wanted to bring people into that kind of world in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. But I, what I said, that's not me, of course. Uh, you know, the, the characters are composites, like the, the young man was a composite of maybe different people I've worked with. Uh, so yeah, some of the experiences of how the psychiatrist, and I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a psychotherapist, so I don't prescribe meds like mm-hmm. a psychiatrist would. But the psychiatrist in the story, uh, you know, he's, uh, he does some therapies that I'm familiar with, so there's some you know, truth in there about how you actually work with a client and what, what's going through your mind and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to bring people into that world, but mostly it's really about, you know, facing uh, new realities. What, what do you do when you start seeing things differently? How do you get to that place? How do you open up in that way? And, uh, when, in fact, when he starts to experience some out of the world kind of transcendent realities through the through contacting these other people who come to the unit uh he thinks he's he's losing touch with reality he thinks he's having a psychotic break and people don't know how to handle it when that happens i think we're all we all have the capability to see or contact beyond this material realm Mm -hmm. Uh, in the book i call it the quantum collective that's a term that uh i came up for that and the idea that um, uh, we're kind of like our matter is kind of like frozen light, and if you could thaw it out, you start to see things completely differently. Hmm. You know, uh, you know. You mentioned how do we get the mental health field to kind of bring in spirituality, mm-hmm. and, and I think they're they're maybe trying to do it a little more, but it's not appreciated. And it's not unless a client comes in and says, you know, I really have a spiritual background or religious background. Otherwise, they may not bring it in at all. And it's more about almost like a mechanical approach to treating someone. You know, if your car breaks down and your battery is dead, what do you do? You replace it. You take it in the mechanic, swap it out, boom, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. But humans are complex feelings. You can't just swap out an emotion, right? And... So it's, it's, but yet the mechanical, the medical field tries to work in that mechanical fix it. Oh, take the pill that will fix you. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, medication can't serve a, a purpose. It, mm-hmm. it can, it can help in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you could do both. You could do that. Uh, you can do uh, a prescription or something uh a medication that might help you and also learn other different coping skills and try to put your experience in a different perspective. Sometimes I think 
you know, we talk about mindfulness. Uh, as somebody recently asked me, so, how, you know, how could somebody, what's the best place for somebody to start learning about mindfulness? And I, and I said, well, to really to, to look at where your pain is, to look at where your suffering is, start there. I mean, that's a wonderful teacher for you to start observing. How does your mind work with that? What are the mental, uh, you know, um, the mental, the mindsets you have mm-hmm. about that and everything and start to observe it, start to kind of deconstruct that and start with your own suffering. Uh, and I think mindfulness actually, although a lot of people don't treat it this way, the purpose of it is to really reduce suffering, to help us uh, grow, start to learn about ourselves, start to understand others. Yeah, grow compassion, exactly. And so it's really uh, a tool to reduce suffering. Hmm. You know, one of the things, too, you know, that I've discovered is, you know, I would say like most, men, most for me, you know, most of my mental issues and, and depression, all that has been caused by negative self-talk in my head, you know. And I also know from experience, the more I fight that self-talk, the more the more power I'm giving it, you know. I'm just feeding mm. it by, by fighting it, you know. And, and sometimes yeah. it, it seems like there's an impossible cycle to get out of. It, it's, it's pretty incredible, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, if you try to resist something, it creates a force, an opposing force. And so what mindfulness kind of helps us do, it just helps us step back and observe it. You know, like, oh, there's a cloud passing the sky or a leaf floating on a stream coming by, right? And you can look at your thoughts like that. and Or you can take a breath, which is a nice way to just step back for a moment from that mind stream, mm-hmm. right? And settling that those, those, those thoughts can hijack you. You know, I often... Uh, think that if we identify with those thoughts, in other words, if we grab onto them tightly, they pull us in different directions. And and the thing is, actually, I'd like to ask your audience today, you know, how many thoughts have you had today? Have you counted the number of thoughts in your mind since you woke up this morning? <laughs> thousands, probably. It's only been uh, yeah, an thousands. hour for me. <laughs> right. You know, the Buddha thought we could have 3,000 thought moments per second. Uh, but it's been estimated that the average person has at least tw- about 20,000 thoughts a day, and wow. I would say a lot more than that. And how many of those thoughts tell you something really profound about who you are? I'd say maybe <laughs> three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I say. Like, exactly. I say this all the time, too. I say, like, all the stuff I think, right, I would say 95% of it is, is garbage, and 5% of it is actually useful. Yeah, I, that's a pretty good percentage. I, I like that. Yeah, and so you've got all of this garbage, right, just coming by, and and yet if you think that's who I am, you might think, well, I'm I'm garbage. Yeah, right. It's, hard. I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, so it's really you know I, it's a, a big word, liberating. I would mm-hmm. say, but it really is liberating to uh, recognize that those thoughts don't define who you are. Right. And uh, that a lot of them are just conditioned thoughts, toxic thoughts. There's even been research that shows that uh, the average person, I mean, it's it's actually normal to have distressing random thoughts throughout the day. You know, if you're not focused on a task. So if your mind doesn't have anything to do, it'll just start spinning ideas and spinning stories. Mm-hmm. And they even have a name for that. It's called the default mode network of the brain. That's what neuroscientists call wow. it. 
that you just go into these, uh, you know, spinning of thoughts and it's what having a big prefrontal cortex does. But, you know, we can, uh, rather than let it pull us around and jerk us this way and that, we, through uh, mind training or through mindfulness, we learn to be the master, really, you know, the trainer mm-hmm. of that process. It's so hard, though, in a, especially in our culture, where we're told to, we're, we're taught that we use, I don't know, brute force to conquer things. You know, work hard and, and, and just mm. make it happen. And we're not really taught to, that sitting down, being quiet, breathing, and neutrality, you know, are, That's are a solutions. Thought. We're not really taught yeah. that. What you said just now, I think, is really hits the nail on the head. It's beautiful because uh, our attention is being taken out of us all the time nowadays. I mean, we're looking at screens. We're, you know, um, distracted by all these messages coming to us on text and email and everything. And, uh, yeah, how much time do we have to just sit and be present, right, and to reflect inwardly? And I think that we're losing that. Um, you know, technology is embedded in our lives. It's very important, but we need mm-hmm. to find that balance. You know, even giving yourself just a little time just to sit and take a few breaths here and there. Um, and I, you know, I started a reflect group online and, um, it's a Facebook reflect group, but you know, I, every Monday I put out a Monday morning, uh, uh, guidepost or reflection for people to think about that week. This is a way to stop and have something to focus on and to think about that, you know, you can use and say, hey, at the end of the week, I did this. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't have to go. I mean, I I went into a monastery for a period of time, but what I've learned is you don't need to do that. And I wouldn't recommend it, actually, for a lot of people that we can just... Uh, do what we need to do just in a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Even a minute at a time can make a difference in helping you get a new perspective. That's something I still have trouble reminding myself that even if I sit down for five minutes, it's beneficial. It's like sometimes I'll get, I won't, I'll be like, I'm not going to sit down and meditate today because I don't have 20 minutes to do it. Yeah. You know, and I forget, like, you know, five minutes is, is still there. It's, it's still going to have, benefit to me yeah i i did a um, i was actually contacted to be part of a study that was done at the university of portland with the priests there who work in these very uh, impoverished parishes and so they were under a lot of pressure they um many of them were older and they uh, some of them had been identified with heart issues heart problems and they didn't have the time to go through a big, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And so they asked me, what could you do to train them in a very brief time? And then we'll actually measure their, uh, uh, you know, measure their heart rate, measure their blood pressure, measure their stress levels before and after and see if even a brief mindfulness training can help. So I, I went and I gave them a one-hour training. Um, and what I did was I taught them how to just be, bring, and I called it contemplative breathing. I didn't even use the word mindfulness because I, I thought, you know what, they're, they, uh, they're going to connect more to the idea of contemplation, right? And prayer and that kind of thing. So that's how I, I, um, 
tilted it kind of in that direction for them. And um, so I had them do a mindfulness practice. They could do walking. They could um, breathe with while they were saying some prayers. They could, um, you know, just sit if they wanted to. But I opened it up and gave them different options. But so three times a day for three minutes each time. So it was nine minutes total a day. And at the end of a month, we measured them again. And they're, um, they're, they're, they took a stress test. Their stress level went significantly down. And their, um, and their heart rate and their blood pressure went significantly down. So really only need to do a few minutes a day or three minutes at a time even. So, you know, in our, is there any, like, you're talking to sort of like a little bit about, you know, um, going to more of a holistic type of living. Um, how, how do people do that? I mean, it's so hard to survive just as it is. And the idea of, you know, trying to simplify things, even just a little bit, even trying to get rid of some of the little things that seem unnecessary. And I don't know. It's just very difficult to unclutter life. Yeah. The, and, and it, that's a great point because it, 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 you know, we start depending on things and we can't do without them. And so, uh, I would, what I would do is I would think, you know, how is this, how are all these things that I'm using in my life, how are they either helping me get closer to people or keeping me away from people? So I think relationships are one of the most important things we can have to help us grow, to help to enrich our lives and give us a sense of, you know, fulfillment and meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if all the things, little things we're doing takes us away from that, then we might want to consider making a change. I mean, so I think I, I like people to become their own um, detective in their lives, kind of, you know, and become an observer yeah. and start to really look at this stuff. You know, I had somebody who got some new uh, was electronic gear one time, and, and she said um, that it was, she actually discovered that she was spending less time going outside, getting on her bicycle with friends and doing some things that she really enjoyed. And she was stuck in her room doing this electronic stuff. And so uh, she made the decision on her own once she once it came into her awareness of that, she, what she was missing. And she w- wanted to find more balance. So she mm-hmm. still did the electronic stuff, just a little bit less, and reconnected with her friends. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is that sometimes it's just about how we engage in the moment. So even if you're doing something that, um, you know, you're on the computer or you're looking at your screen, you can still do that with presence and bring mindfulness into noticing the colors on the screen, noticing how your fingers are moving as they're tapping or texting. I mean, bring yourself into full presence with that moment. And that, I think, is a wonderful way just to Mm. find um, a sense of tranquility. That's like the, um, as Zen saying, when washing dishes, wash the dishes. When chopping wood, it, chop wood. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, that reminds me of a story, if you don't mind, I could tell yeah. about this person who wanted to understand, didn't understand what mindfulness was, and he heard about this mindfulness clinic. So 
he went there and said, do you mind if I just watch and observe all day? And they said, no, no, be our guest. So he watched everybody, you know, he watched and uh, everybody, you know, they were reading the paper or they were, they had their lunch, they did all these things. At the end of the day, he said, I want to talk to the head, the headmaster here, the head mindfulness person. So they tracked that person down and, and the man, the gentleman came over and said, oh, what can I do for you? And, and this, and this guy said, you know, um, I, I, been curious about mindfulness i watched what you did here today and everything you do i do i don't see any difference i think this is a big scam you know <laughs> and the guy said we said well he said, maybe there's a difference he says when we walk we walk when we sit we sit just like what you said gary mm -hmm. when we you know when we eat we eat full presence with each one of those things and it really does shift how you experience things. When I was in the monastery, for example, they had a sign up on the walls. It said, noble silence in the dining room. And so when the monks would eat, we would eat in silence. But there was such attentiveness because we were present, or at least they were. I'm going to talk for myself. <laughs> you know, But I noticed that when, you know, somebody, when I finished my bowl of rice or whatever, somebody would be holding out another plate for me if I wanted more. So it was just a wonderful attentiveness to everybody. And and so even though we were eating in silence, but there was just, uh, you know, they were eating, but they were also present with their surroundings. And so it was a beautiful lesson for me. I remember uh, experiencing that, and and that's what kind of stayed with me. Hmm. And that's hard now. We live in a society that wants to keep us distracted. Its goal is to keep us distracted and mm. make us, I don't know, consume. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, too, I think, especially if we're having uh, something difficult in our life is happening. And in, in, the, in the book Travelers, for example, the psychiatrist there he doesn't want to deal with his grief, and he and he keeps himself occupied reading journals and doing all these things. And at, at one point, this supervisor he goes, I'm not really giving too much away here, but uh, and and she tells him that he's a he's afraid of silence. In fact, the traveler tells him the same thing. The traveler is trying to tell him, help him to learn to find silence, because only then. You know, it's like all these thoughts are like static. You're not getting a, a clean signal. And so you need to kind of um, let all that static settle and find that stillness. And then you have a different experience with uh, of consciousness. Hmm. You do. You definitely do. One of the things that I've also found, and this is my own experience, is I'll going through, through these phases where I'm doing all that, you know, and I'm doing it regularly, and then I fall yeah. off the wagon for a while. And then once I, I fall off the wagon, then I start beating myself, and that keeps making it worse, and then it's really hard to get back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as as much as, you know, I've practiced mindfulness, uh, I, I fall off the wagon, too. I mean, so I think it's normal, mm -hmm. and... We just have to realize that uh, I, I, there's a guy I know. He's a he's a Lama, a Buddhist Lama, and uh, and he he says you know that he has his good days and his bad days, and <laughs> you know people have been practicing this. It's just 
that's why they call it a practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so the times when we get pulled off are good learning experiences for us. Mm. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, rather than beat ourselves up, right? I mean, we're all, we're, um, it, you know, I, I always believe if, you know, if you're in a human mind and you have a human body, uh, you're going to have frailties and you're going to have things that are a challenge for you and you're going to have a loss in your life. And, and so, uh, and, and yes, it's an obstacle, but it's also an opportunity to grow. Mm. And I think that's really what we're here for is to grow our, uh, our consciousness, grow our connection. I hope, I don't know. I, I still haven't figured out what we're here for. You know, like you were talking about too, like your, your character experiences this grief and then he yeah. doesn't want to sit down with it. Now, I, I mean, I've yeah. so experienced my share of, of loss and, you know, and I still don't particularly like sitting down with it because too, it makes me question, like, you know, we're all taught, like, like if you're Buddhist and from a Buddhist tradition, all, all, all is talk about impermanence and, you know, how that causes suffering and clinging and, and, and all that, you know. But when you experience it in that, experiencing like a death, especially like a death of a child or whatever, yeah. um, I don't know. It, sometimes it makes life feel meaningless. Mm. I mean, at least for me. I don't know if other people that go through grief, feel that thing where they look at life and you're just like, what's the point? You know, I'm going to yeah. die anyway. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think what you say is very interesting because I've kind of felt too that, you know, the Buddhist approach of uh, non-attachment, non-grasping could sometimes be either uh, taken too far or misunderstood. And I, um, you know, there was a parable of the mustard seed, which is a very popular parable in Buddhism. Mm -hmm about this woman who, back in Buddhist time, and she's got a, a, a baby, and then baby died, and she won't let go of it, right. holding on to it, just, you know, clutching it. And she hears about the Buddha coming to town, and hears it, well, here's a guy, he's been known to do different miracles and things. And so, after the Buddha gives his talk, she goes up to him and says, uh, you know, uh, I hear you can do miracles, you, uh, you've got to bring my baby back to life. Um, I just, I beg you to do this for me. And the Buddha says, you know what? He says, I will do that for you. But first, I'll only do it on the condition that you can go around the village and find one person who has not lost someone dear to them. And she goes around to the village, knocks on every door. And of course, everybody has endured yes. loss. <laughs> she goes back to the Buddha. Finally, she says, I'm, you know, I have to let go of the child. But I think... When it comes to loss like that, I think we can both uh, um, find a middle way. I don't, you know, I, I think that the grief we have, and a mother's grief, or you know, anybody who loses somebody, that could last a lifetime. There's no saying you've got to get over that. I think it can last a lifetime, and it's kind of a a living letter of love to that person hmm. who you've lost. It's a way of saying, life is precious. I mean, I think it plants the seed, potential seed, to say, this loss shows me just how precious life is. And so the person that's before me right now, I don't know if they're going to be here tomorrow. I need to honor and respect that. 
person with compassion. So it can be a very powerful thing. So I think it's, it, you know, sometimes we think of things in all or none, white and black, like, oh, you've got yeah. to either completely let it go and get your, get your life moving again, mm-hmm. or, you know, or you stay uh, stuck in that place of intense sorrow. And I think there's a, you know, I think you can stay attached to that person and their spirit. Uh, and at the same time, move your life forward. So I, I think it doesn't have to be either or. You know, my, my mother died. She had a wonderful life. She was 99 years old when she passed away. Uh, last year were tough for her. But um, when, you know, after she died, you know, I was hoping, well, maybe I'll have a dream of her. And I didn't have any kind of dream or anything. But what happened was, um, I'd say about maybe eight, nine months after, it wasn't really a dream. And I've had this experience where uh, it was vivid in a way that a dream wasn't. And she was with me, and I felt her spirit. She didn't say anything, mm-hmm. but I felt her energy. And spirit. It was definitely her. Wow. And I woke up, uh, and it was kind of, it was interesting because I kind of came into consciousness just as this was all happening. And it had a, a vividness to it. It was very unlike a dream. So I think that, uh, you know, we're all travelers here. I and mean, that's maybe the basic of the idea behind the book, Travelers, is, uh, you know, when you travel to a different country and you don't know the language, you feel lost, and you, de- you depend on the, the support and the help of others in mm-hmm. that place, Right. It's the same thing here. I feel like we're all travelers here, and we're kind of passing through, and uh, and we can help the other travelers, and that's an honor. I mean, that's a great uh, ability to to be able to offer that to someone. That's a I've kind of talked about a lot of different ideas there, Gary. But... I know it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful <laughs> perspective, though, the idea that we're travelers and and, and um, helping each other through it. Yeah, and that that's kind of what. The um, it, it's not giving away any story points mm-hmm. or anything, but that's kind of like the perspective that the psychiatrist gains at the end of the story through, through all that he's been through. So even even though this story was kind of a traveler's kind of inspired by one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and I love that. Uh, this is a more hopeful uh, kind of an ending. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> one one of the things sometimes I I think is sort of like going in a little bit of a different direction now um, with, with people that are, you know, suffer from like mental, certain mental illnesses or like, like, like schizophrenia, for example, you know, I wonder sometimes though, if um, not that they're perceiving something that's not there, but like, it's like a filter has been taken off and they're perceiving more than what we're perceiving. Do you think there's anything to that type of theory? Um, I, I do. I do. No, I don't think that um, uh, modern psychology or neuroscientists would say that. Mm-hmm. But uh, what you said is is my belief. Actually, I went through a major depressive disorder when I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time I went through that, I started to have uh, experiences out of body not just out of body, but also even experiences of um, what might have been reincarnations. Hmm. I don't know how to really describe it, but it was just 
like this vibration just uh, was so powerful, like a freight train coming through my head. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, you know, this, and, and I'm really grateful that I thought this, but I thought, uh, you know, here I was in this heavy depression, but I thought, whatever this is, uh, it must be natural. I'm going to let it occur and just watch, see what happens. So the vibration would occur. And then I start to have some different um, transcendent experiences. And I, I saw it almost like a, um, so I didn't pathologize it or anything. Now, it's a good thing I didn't tell the therapist that I was seeing at the time. <laughs> I don't know what he would have thought. Um, but uh, I did actually tell one person who thought uh, a neuro, this person was a, um, a, um, a neuroscientist, not a neuroscientist, but a neurologist. Mm -hmm. And they, and I didn't tell them it was me. And they said, oh, that person's having epileptic seizures. Well, I knew that wasn't the case. So uh, it's not understood. But the way I felt it was, it was giving me a view into, into saying, hey, you know, yeah, you're going through this depression and life is hard right now, but there's more. This is only just a part of what you're able to tap into. And so it gave me a sense of relief, actually, that I didn't know when these experiences were going to happen. And actually uh, did some experimentation with these ex experiences where I was able to uh, try different things. And I was and I still occasionally uh, get those uh, experiences. But you know, I didn't confuse that with... Um, uh, you know what I always tell people, you might have some kind of a vision or a, you know, uh, but it's what you do out here in your day-to-day -day world that really matters. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've always felt. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, I wish I had that. Well, it's okay if you have it. I mean, it, <laughs> and I think just seeing the beauty, uh, losing your, the I, the, the me, the my, the mind, losing that ego identity, which we can easily do by just connecting with nature and just absorb, you know, like we did when we were children. Mm -hmm. You'd see a rose or for the first time and you'd say, oh my, it would blow your mind, you know, as a kid. Or you'd see a hummingbird or something in nature. Right. And now it's, <laughs> and we're older, it's like, oh, another rose, oh, another hummingbird. <laughs> we miss it. We miss the, yeah. the, the newness, the, the, the joy of those experiences. Right. And that's what gets us out of ourself and we're able to do that. And so I think nature, spending more time in nature is important and that can help us kind of recover that lost part of ourself and, and help us expand our sense of self. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You talk about schizophrenia. I think some of it might be for some people. It could be just the, 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 the bell that, you know, kind of, uh, narrows everything that can come through is opened up and we're inundated with too much. So it's possible. Um, I know that medication does really help people who are unable to function because of that. Mm -hmm. I also know somebody who had, uh, um, who was institutionalized with schizophrenia, who was later, um, he's a normal life, and uh, he had gone to a monastery, and it was, a, I think it was some Buddhist monk told him he was having an awakening, awakening experience. So that's probably a small number of those, but, right. it, and so he was able to integrate it. You know, how do we integrate these 
experiences, I think, is important, too. For me, I saw it as um, being something that helped me just get a bigger view of things and that it was temporary. I didn't have to go and try to have to be in that space all the time. And I don't, I, and to this day, I can't tell you if some of those were experiences were actual reincarnation experiences or what they were. But I just accept that, you know, we, the mind is, is, is infinite in what it's able to do. You know, there's a whole universe, there's a universe out there, but there's an universe that's just as vast inside. And, uh, in fact, uh, one of the teachings that's, there are some little teachings in Travelers. Maybe I couldn't get away from doing that, but <laughs> one of the, uh, uh, the psychiatrist goes to see a supervisor at one point because he thinks he's losing his mind with everything that's happening. And, uh, she had been to India in the story that her, his supervisor, and she says to him the words of Vivekananda, who was a, uh, a 19th century uh, Hindu sage who came to the U.S., came to the West, was one of the first people actually to bring Eastern ideas mm -hmm. uh, to the West. And and she tells him the words of Vivekananda, which were um, the, uh, uh, let me get this quote right, um, the infinite universe uh Oh, the infinite library, library of the universe is in your own mind. That's what she tells him. And, you know, it's important. Think about that for a moment. The infinite library of the universe is in your own mind. The idea that the universe came from uh, something the size of a pinhead <laughs> and that consciousness is in us and intelligence is in us means that somehow the potential was already in that pinhead. So it, it, it does make you think maybe we're the evolving consciousness of the, of the universe or the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I like to think of things in terms of evol we're evolving, you know, it's not like mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're stuck. Well, you know, when you look at physics, it looks like we're less matter and more consciousness. Oh yeah, you know our our very atoms may be conscious. They probably are to some extent, because because the harder <laughs> they, they try to find like actual physical matter, they're not finding. Right. You know? like, <laughs> we don't even know what this is. You know. Yeah, it's that weird. there's so much of the universe that isn't matter. That matter is just a very tiny part of the entire universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. You know, I, my theory is that. You know, that matter doesn't exist in that we're just sort of living. It's like the Hindu idea that we're just living inside of a dream. That there's mm. this great cosmic dreamer having a dream trying to understand itself. So in order for it to understand itself, it has to have every possible dream. Yeah. Yeah. That could be. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting idea. It's been part of, uh, Tibetan. Uh, thinking as well, mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhists, that this is somehow um, a waking dream. And, and somehow we've forgot, like we forgot that we're part of it. And now we believe that we're real. Yeah. You know, and, and I think part of life is kind of, I don't know, merge the two. Like you said, like sort of like a middle way of, of understanding, you know, 
that we're, we're a part of this larger consciousness and um but yet we're separate to have a certain experiences to help bring about understanding yeah oh it's fascinating uh there's a there's a guy named vs ramachandran he's a, a neuroscientist and he's done some work with phantom limbs and things like that but he says that if you and you can look him up on youtube vs uh Ramachandran, and he says that if you didn't have your skin, because our skin, the epidermis, is kind of a feedback, you know, that goes to the brain that says, this is where I end. I end where my skin is, mm-hmm. right? And everything else is outside of me. But he said that if we didn't have the skin, we wouldn't know where we started or where we began. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between me or you or anybody else. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 a it's just not a concept. great time to be alive, right? And, <laughs> with all these great ideas out there, <laughs> but but it's, but it's also true. Like you can't argue that either. It's you know, it's where what we feel, what we're perceiving, and and, and all of that. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. But at the same time, when you're in this form. Everything's so dense and hard. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a challenge being a human, that's for sure, right? I mean, uh, but we have an incredible gift to be here. I, in some ways, I feel like I... Uh, and the other thing is that our genetics, they probably hold somehow all the memories of our ancestors, all the... Think about all the suffering <laughs> that... You know, and I think we've really evolved to a much better place, actually, with all the turmoil in the world. If you think about all that our ancestors had to go through, all the trials and uh, difficulties they had, um, that somehow that um, that imprint is in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, and it has to be in a DNA. I've never thought of that though. That all, everything, all their struggles and everything is all part of me, you know. And maybe that's why I'm cranky a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's why we're in a kind of a you know the world's kind of cranky right now. So, <laughs> um, so. How did you get started in all this? Like, like I guess was, was it was the experience that you had in your twenties that made you start investigating consciousness and what all this is in in, in mindfulness. I yeah, I think it was. I and also, you know, I'd also say it was also the depression and the trauma that I had experienced growing up that I wanted to try to understand things. I wanted to try to understand how. Uh, I could break from the patterns that kept repeating in my life. Mm-hmm. So there were some patterns, and that's actually why I went into the monastery. There were some painful patterns that kept repeating, and I had already met this monk. Uh, a friend of mine, I remember, said, uh, you know, there's a monk I think you should meet. And I met this Uthilananda, who's a monk from Burma. Mm-hmm. It's a well-known teaching monk in the U.S., and I didn't really know anything about that, except that when I met him, he had a sense of availability and a sense of openness and compassion I had never felt before. And I'm from Chicago originally. 
And you didn't find people like that on the street corners in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I was, and I, and so when I went through another one of these painful losses in my life that was a, repeating that pattern, I thought, um, I wonder if I could ordain with this Uthilananda. And I found out that I could, um, that he was the head of a monastery out uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains outside of uh, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so I ordained because I, I wanted to find out if I could break this pattern. And I also wanted to find out how did somebody transform into the kind of person that he was. He couldn't have always been like that. And did we, you know, this the seed of that potential is in each of us. That kind of blew my mind. And uh, so... I was able to learn from him, and it was a real, uh, real gift. And I was able to start to look at those patterns and start to see um, the root causes of those. And you know, if you see the, you know, if you, it's like a weed. You could pull out the weed. You have to get it from the roots, right? So, what kind of, what kind of things cause these root patterns? Is it, is it our childhood experiences, our parents? Um, or, you know. Well, I think that's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and in my case, yeah, there was uh, some abuse in the family and trauma that uh, I can look and I can say, wow, that's gone down generations. Mm -hmm. Right? Some of this stuff's hard um, to notice because you're, when you're growing up in it, you don't know yeah. anything but that situation. So to you as a child, this is normal. Like, like this is what your your blood and, and yeah, and, and it follows you up. And then you go out into the real world. You say, "Well, part of you will be like, oh, you know, what? I don't want to be like my parents, of course." So you try to do something else, and then somehow you end up just like your parents. And then before you know it, you're like fifty years old, and you're looking back, and you're like, "Now I see it." Yeah, yeah. It's it's like imagine a fish that's swimming in a dirty. You know, that has a dirty bowl of water. It doesn't know it's dirty. Now, Krishnamurti, who was a great teacher in the last century, uh, he said, uh, it is no measure of health to be, uh, well, uh, is no measure of well-being to be adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So, uh, and if you're in a sick system, and we're not talking about that in a blaming kind of way, because mm -hmm. everybody in that system, you know, brought their baggage with them. And our parents had a lot of baggage. We like to think our parents when we're little are just these perfect beings, right? I mean, they're they're huge and they're, they seem all-knowing to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we learned that they had frailties. They had flaws. Uh, they did the best they could. And so at some point, to be able to forgive that, is a major turning point but then also not to repeat to see the areas where you have amnesia um, that you don't recognize what's happening there were areas i had amnesia uh something would happen and i would completely but forget about it let it go and yet it was uh having a tremendous impact on me i just couldn't look at it for some reason it was a blind spot and i and, and i realized that that blind spot existed in one of my parents, the same exact thing. So it was interesting. It's been a 
a real process and uh, I couldn't have probably done it alone, but through different, uh, you know, I was fortunate to find some good teachers along the way, either, uh, whether it's psychotherapist or um, Uthi Lananda. Do you think it's like more be- when do you think it's more beneficial when a person is in psychotherapy to also practice mindfulness along with it? Well, uh, I don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends where you're at, I think. When I went through um, my initial psychotherapy for that depression in my 20s, uh, mindfulness really wasn't a thing I thought about back then. It wasn't really talked about mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. And the particular uh, uh, person who was treating me, I don't think he had any real awareness of it. Uh, but you know what they say, it's really the relationship. When you go to therapy with somebody, it's about how, uh, you build the relationship of trust with that person. It's less about the modality, about the therapies type than the, than the connection you have with that person. And yeah, I think you want to find a therapy that might work well with somebody. If somebody's very, you know, um, visual, and, uh, you know, just talking uh, might not be the best. You know, talk therapy is great for people that are more verbal, linguistic. Mm-hmm. But it might not be the best thing for somebody who's more visual, artistic. So what I've learned through the years is try to match my therapy modality to, so the, to help somebody gets really present. Mm-hmm. And But then again... Underlying that is that relationship, so critical. You've got to really build trust and a rapport. So it sounds like the opposite might not work. Like mindfulness on its own might not help without the psychotherapy? Well, my, you mean if somebody has an issue mm-hmm. you're dealing with? Like, like say if you were in your 20s and you didn't go see a therapist and just decided to practice mindfulness instead. What do you think the result would be? You know, it would depend on the person. It would depend on the issues they were dealing with. Uh, I, You know, in my case, I think I really needed to have a, a caring professional there uh, to kind of guide me. And that was maybe the best solution for me at that time. But for someone else, maybe not. I mean, I had, you know, it's funny. I had tried before I had that depression. I had actually read some different books. I was trying to find ways to self-heal it just didn't it wasn't the complete path for me hmm. and that's one of those things too I, I completely agree with you that everybody's different there's probably as many yeah. different ways of healing as there are people in this world oh yeah absolutely and i and i think uh, if, if somebody's having uh issues and you know needs to uh, seek help, you know, go do that or see if you can deal with it on your own. If, if that, but, it, but, but be honest, if it's not working then get the help you need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes you just have, it is trial and error sometimes too, I think for people, which can be very frustrating because eventually you're just like, what are we going to do if I run out of things to try? Well, and, <laughs> and then you don't always find the right person to help you. 
and that can be frustrating. I know I've, I've I've known people who went to several therapists who were just not happy with uh, the people they were were trying to get to help them. Mm-hmm. I've heard that too, where people um, will try therapy for a little while, and if it, therapy doesn't work, and it's like, well, maybe this wasn't the right type of therapy. Yeah, the right person. Yeah. Yeah, maybe not the right person or the right therapy. Um, and you have to be open to it. So when I worked in an eating disorder clinic, for example, many of those patients were mandated and they had to come to the clinic because of their health and their family, maybe forced them to go. And if they didn't want to be there, I mean, you know, as a therapist, you would do all the heavy lifting and they weren't really doing anything. And so it wasn't going to work for them. And so a lot of times we had to um, actually tell people, tell their families, you know, so-and-so doesn't want to be here, so we think it's best if they discontinue therapy. And then what I found, too, was that sometimes, maybe, you know, six months later, a year later, that person would return because they wanted to return. Mm. They were ready. That made all the difference. So you really have to be open uh, and willing to receive of the help. Yeah. That's part of it too. I think like, you know, like what you're mentioning too, like when, when you are there though, you are sort of planting the seed. So even though they're not ready for it, when they walk away and they're going about the daily business, part of them starts going like, they can't forget the little bit that they did learn when they were there. And then a year later, it's like, I, I got to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll bet that's absolutely true. I'll bet that that planted the seed for the people that returned, that there was something there that they saw that maybe they got some value, even though they were fighting it and resisting, and uh, and they realized that they could get a lot more out of it. Um, so, in your book, like, I don't want you to give away a plot, obviously, you know, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know. I, like I'm kind of going back to the grief thing again. You know, how 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 does your character, or or give me a hint of how the character reaches some level of acceptance of losing a child? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, it's really he and his wife. It's driven a wedge between him and his wife. Because his daughter's room, the wife wants to keep it exactly as it was. Mm-hmm. And he calls it the shrine of Mel, the shrine of Melissa, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And he wants to dismantle it. He wants to move on. He, it's almost too painful for him to stay and to see that room there. Even though every night he goes into that room and has a conversation with his deceased daughter, right? But it's driven a wedge between them. She is connected with the church members and she has a knitting group with them and and he didn't want to go that route so he you know they're kind of split also it has driven a wedge between him and his friends who all had they all had kids mm-hmm. who now you know now they're getting engaged getting married different things happen in their lives and it was too much for him to uh, face that so he's isolated from his friends uh, and what happens as he goes through his uh, mystical journey, he 
has some ex- out of, I just call them otherworldly experiences, both in this world and in this quantum collective, where he connects with his daughter in a completely new way. Mm. And also with the past, with his own past. And so there's some different, and the future. So this quantum collective is really uh, a this incredible web where um, time does not exist. So do you believe and, in something like that, like the Akashic Records, collective consciousness, like, and the idea that, that knowledge isn't necessarily stored in our brain, but the brain is more like a receiver? Yeah, personally, I, I do. I mean, I don't know what if you, I don't know, uh, I, I guess some people call it the Akashic Record. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't understand that myself, really, but... That's <laughs> collective but consciousness, I do, like Carl Jung. Yeah, but I can understand this quantum collective mm-hmm. idea, and I, you know, I think that uh, there's consciousness in even a passive consciousness in objects and things that we may not be aware of. Uh, we, we can't really understand that kind of consciousness, mm-hmm. but I think it extends beyond just our kind of consciousness. And so, yeah, I think there's, um, you know, one time, this is a kind of interesting, I've never said this anywhere before, but I, a friend of mine once for a birthday bought me a, um, uh, a, a, a gift of talking to somebody who had the ability to tap into the Akashic records. Mm-hmm. And so I called this guy up and he had trained in Tibet apparently for many, many years. Uh, he's a Westerner. And I called him and he gave me this reading and I was kind of stunned actually by what he seemed to know about me and um, <clears throat> it's interesting he said that in the past he didn't know anything about my current life but he said in the past I had been a monk hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny because it felt so normal being a monk <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for a lot of people I think it might feel very weird to put on that rope and everything but it didn't for me mm-hmm. and and he said I'd been a monk in Italy, and, I, and so he told me some other details that would have made sense in terms of some of the patterning of my life that I was still working with, some of the patterns that repeated. So it's, I'm, yeah, I, so I don't discount it as a possibility. I, I just try to stay open. I, I, I can't say, oh, yes, for sure, this or that mm-hmm. is the way it is. But I like to just stay open to the possibility. Well, other things that you, you talk about too is like how this affected them as a couple. And I also noticed that one of your books is like mindfulness for like couples, which I find, yeah. which is interesting. I've never seen that before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the mindfulness toolbox for relationships. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think it's a great way to build relationships, actually. I've got some practices in there where you sit back to back and you breathe with your partner. And you come into a cadence of breathing with the other other person. And it's been shown, actually, research shows that when you're really close to someone, your your heart, your heart rates, um, they sync up. And your breathing will sync up. Um, so I'm just in that book, I just try to bring it into more uh, more of a focus about how to be mindful with your partner. Hmm. Interesting. Why did you think that opposites attract? 
Well, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I think that, uh, I mean, if we're picking, again, if we're, you just, what you just, what, the reason why I asked this question is because what you just said made me think like, you know, if, if a person's like sort of like one person's like really mellow and the other person's too amped up, when the two come together, if their heart rate and everything is adjusting to each other, maybe that creates balance, like an actual physical type of balance too. Yeah, there there might be some kind of balance going on. That's something I, um, and it, and it could be that I would want to know what their parental, you know, who were their parents, mm-hmm. what were their parents like? Was one parent amped up and one, you know, uh, mellow? And sometimes we connect up with one of our with somebody who resembles our parents energetically, mm-hmm. and that's kind of interesting when you start to notice that kind of thing. Why do we do that? Why why is it like like well, men, men, men sort of huh? end up dating their mother? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's feels comfortable in some way. It's a system dynamic that you're you're comfortable with, you're familiar with. Is it so healthy? you're kind of plug you're plugging into something that's like almost like a, a ready made uh dynamic or system. Hmm. Is it healthy though? It may not be. Yeah, it may not be. And, and that's where I think uh, mindfulness comes in to kind of start looking at: uh, Are you repeating patterns here? Is it is it is it beneficial? There was a great line that um, I think it was uh, Ramdas mm-hmm. uh, who uh, who passed away I think a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, but he said um, his his one basic question was, uh, and I think it was him: uh, Does it serve? And I think that's a really great question when you're considering doing anything. Does it serve? You know, does it serve me? Does it serve the other uh, person or persons in mm-hmm. this relationship? So when you're thinking about doing an action or saying anything, uh, when you think about it, you know, you're walking on the beach and you look back and you see you've made these imprints in the sand, and all the little actions that we make, all the thoughts we have, have some kind of an imprint. And it may be, uh, and that may not be discernible. It could be very subtle, but I think uh, that these all these little imprints of consciousness uh, remain somehow. Hmm. Well, maybe that's what that akashic record is. What do, What do you understand that to be? My, my my view is pretty a little complicated, I probably, but I think that um, I don't believe in time. I, I I don't. I think time is just a way for us to have this experience. Mm. So I think everything is probably happening all at one time, and I don't. I, I perceive things as probabilities. If there's some type of consciousness in the universe and it's trying to understand itself, the only way it's going to understand itself is to run through every possible probability. So therefore, we are a probability. I'm a probability. You're a probability. This conversation is a probability. And um, so with that, since everything is happening at once, it's sort of like already happened. So we have access to that knowledge when we're able to step out of this limited consciousness that I'm experiencing now. Hmm. Does that make any sense? <laughs> uh, to me, it does. <laughs> I mean, it does. And I, 
I, I, I don't know if it would make sense to everybody, but it does make sense to me. Yeah. And, yeah, there's, there's just this limited sense. consciousness that we're kind of stuck in. And our senses are, I mean, they're limited. We can only see so much wavelength of light, for example, from mm-hmm. our eyes. Other, you know, uh, cats and animals can see at night. I mean, so, yeah, our senses are limited, but there's... Uh, a way of really uh, expanding and opening that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my theory is the same way with that as it is about my thoughts. Yeah, you know, I said my thoughts like ninety five of it is junk and five of it is 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 good. Is the same yeah. way, like with, with reality. I think like um, at a hundred percent, I'm probably only experiencing five percent. Hmm. Yeah. So sort sort of a similar well, idea. Yeah, I like the and I like the idea of probability because I think. Um, it's a little similar to me to, you know, possibility. Mm-hmm. And we need to open up the possibility uh, and not the impossible. There's a great quote from uh, Francis of Assisi, which I can't remember the whole thing, but he said, first you need to uh, see the impossible in order to realize the possible, something like that. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to to, to visit, uh, you know, sacred sites or anything like that. I once led a mindfulness tour through Tuscany, mm-hmm. and one of the places we went to, we took the group to, was uh, uh, Assisi. So we went to the the church where Saint Francis uh, of Assisi was buried, the tomb there. And the, the group went to lunch, and I stayed behind. I just wanted to sit in that place, and I, I was moved to tears. I felt an energy there that was just very powerful. And I think there are certain places uh, where, uh, you know, different spiritual energy mm-hmm. is accumulated. Have you ever experienced that? I've been to, like, the Mayan ruins in Mexico, and I could certainly feel an energy. I don't know if it was... <laughs> But, it was, it was, but that one was like a little bit of a heavy type of energy for some reason. Um, hmm. But I mean, I mean, there are places that like, I felt that way just in simple places in nature. You know, where where, yeah. where I would just be walking in the woods and find <clears throat> something that's completely beautiful. You know, and oh yeah, it's just like how how has nobody noticed this? How, think about that. That's a great idea. I mean, how beauty can uplift us, how it can make us feel. That's pretty mm-hmm. incredible, isn't it? That we're able to tap into feelings. And I think one of the things about just getting back to mindfulness for a minute is we're very uh, centered with thoughts or very, you know, um, mental in our culture. Yeah. But to be able to drop into the body and experience uh, things that happen through the body and actually share a technique that I've used, a practice that is in the Traveler's Book. And I don't know how people would, would do that by themselves, but um, to experience something without the story, without the mental story of it, so something happens, and let me give an example. So something happened with me and a friend, for example, it was kind of upsetting. And I thought, okay, 
how would it, what would it be like for me not to process this through my mind and through what I'm thinking about what happened, but just experience it through the body. And, whoa, it was just a completely different experience without the mind having, you know, preset conditions on this is okay, this is not okay, or whatever. And just experiencing it through the body gave me a completely different outlook or feeling about it. Um, and it changed how I processed what had happened. And it was better for me, having done that. So sometimes, uh, and I, again, maybe that's because of that 95% of the junk mm -hmm. that's getting in the way, that I think there's a way for us to actually experience a lot more that's happening in our lives, uh, not through the head, not through the mind, but actually through the body. I think so, too. I think we can definitely sort of, in fact, Nam Thupton, one of, he's a Buddhist teacher, he would always use this phrase called drop the mind. So, the, you know, the idea is that, to let go of the, the mind and just be in the body. Yeah. Yeah. The body is uh, um, really a wonderful way to get grounded, too. Uh, I had somebody one time who experienced, um, I remember it was a client who experienced um, uh, depersonalization. So he felt everything was, nothing was real. It was like you were in the matrix, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and what I had him do, I found out, I said, is there somebody in your family who you're really close with? Who, And it turned out his, uh, you know, his grandfather he mentioned, I said, is there an object that, you have that connects you to your grandfather and his father given this, this small object. So I said, next time you feel this depersonalization, I want you to grab that object your grandfather gave you. And that brought him back. That grounded him hmm. in the memory and that, um, and that object probably had a lot of somehow a lot of energy in it from the grandfather. So it's interesting to see how, uh, you know, we can process things a lot of times uh, not through the head. It, it is. We can do it. One of the things that I, I wish I could just do that all the time, 24 hours a day. I wish I could be grounded <laughs> and mindful, t you know, or well, 18 hours a day. <laughs> I don't sleep for the rest. <laughs> you know, but, but I don't, obviously. You know, like, I'm like, Probably yeah, throughout the whole day. I mean, maybe I'll spend somewhere between a half hour to an hour actually present in my life, it seems like. Yeah, that's pretty good. You can do <laughs> that length of time. <laughs> well, now you just made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, you, you're actually a mindfulness master if you can do that. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely no master at anything. <laughs> um so I know we have to wrap it up because you have another uh, appointment. Um, so before we wrap it up, um, any final thoughts? Anything I missed? Well, and where people um, can find you and find your book too? Yeah. Well, thanks, Gary. Uh, well, I guess as a final thought, just um, have uh, courage by showing up in your life and showing up for others. I think that's beautiful if you could do that today show up for yourself in some way be present 
be present for another. Um, and, and that way you're being a traveler, actually. Uh, and you can find travelers. Uh, it's available through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the uh, independent booksellers online. Or you could order it from a bookstore if you have a favorite bookstore. Uh, you can go to my website, mindfulpractices.com, M-I-N-D-F-U-L, practices.com. And you can see all my books there. I also have some uh, online courses and CDs that are available. So that's a good place to connect or sign up for my newsletter, mm -hmm. which has information. Um, and that will also link you to, I do a, a blog on Psychology Today, which is the mind, a Practical Mindfulness blog. So I always have a lot of tools or things you can use to get bring mindfulness into your day. So those are just a few ways. And uh, and also, I, I like to say, if you, anybody has questions, my email is on there. Reach out to me. It comes to me, and I like to answer those questions. From If you have questions from our my talk, our talk today with Gary, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the notes of this episode so people can oh, find, great. Your, find your books, find your website, contact you. Cool. All right. Well, this was an awesome interview. Thank you for coming on. Uh, hope we can do it again sometime. And uh, just hang on for a moment. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Thank you.